I love multi-genre stories. I love writing them. I love watching them. I love reading them. I love listening to them. When you take two genres that aren't normally put together and push them together, it makes for amazing things. But I would like to argue that mashing up genres like that is actually a constraint on the writer and not a license to do whatever they want. Let's talk about that on today's Project Shadow. Hello everyone, how are you doing today? My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset, especially if you're reading my new book, Crucify My Love. If you hear something in the background, like some tingling, some scratching, some running and gallivanting about, I would like to remind everyone we have two new kittens. Their names are Minerva and McGonagall, and uh, they are awake and spry. They might even meow a little bit. And no matter what I do, you, you can hear them everywhere. So if you do hear them, that's what's going on. All right. So today I want to talk about mashing up genres, melding genres together into something different and new, and how that actually works to be a constraint on the fiction rather than a license to do more. But before we get into all that, if you haven't already, please do take a moment to rate this podcast and whatever app you're listening to me on. It really does help out a lot. It tells the algorithms to share the podcast with more people. The more people that listen, the bigger the community. The bigger the community, the better the chance we actually get to interact with each other in real life. And after all, that's why I do this in the first place. Thank you to everybody who's already done that. So, melding genres. How is that a constraint? Well, you can actually see this in a lot of Hollywood movies that don't understand that that is a constraint rather than a license. You see, what makes a genre is it has a set of conventions. It has a set of rules. There are things that you can and cannot do within a particular genre. For example, if I want to write a Western, I can't have spaceships. I need to have horses. The technology needs to be from the Victorian era, if not before, because of the primitive nature of the setting. There are probably going to be cowboys and the like. Now, space westerns exist. See, Firefly or Serenity, whatever you want to call it. Yes, but that's a melding of two things. That's space opera and western meeting each other. And in so doing... They create a series of constraints, which is why Firefly ended up working. Because of the necessity of primitive technology and primitive locations, as people are homesteading, which you get from the Western genre, you see the technology that's presented in Firefly being kind of a twofer, while they have the ability to travel between the planets, that does exist, you also notice that the guns that they are using are pretty much guns. Guns, knives, and the like. 
when they go down onto a planet, very rarely do they have motorized vehicles to carry them around because that would just be added expense that they probably can't afford. Either the homesteaders on the planet itself or the crew of the Serenity in general. These constraints from space go into space opera from Western and limit what can be done. So yeah, you can do an episode like the train heist and it is pretty much a train heist from a standard Western. And yes, you get to have the serenity come in and be a part of it, but you can't give them superpowers and super tech to easily make it happen because by adding in that homesteading aesthetic from the Western genre, they would not have access to that kind of technology. And that's how these actually apply constraints one to another. Anytime you do this overlap, anytime you take two genres and put them together in this way, you are creating something new. You have to figure out which rules from each genre are going to apply because some of the rules will necessarily be in conflict with each other. Again, going back to the space Western example, the high-tech necessity of being able to travel through space with the low-tech necessities of being frontiersmen, homesteaders, who are trying to eke by. See, it's not going to be much of a space Western if you give them Star Trek The Next Generation level technology, where they're able to not only settle a planet, but uh, they've got replicators. They're able to set up weather grids to control the weather. They have all manner of power easily accessible to them, virtually free. You have shuttles that are able to take people back and forth, not to mention transporters. You add all of that technology in that you would get from a space opera like Star Trek, and the Western elements vanish. They start going away very quickly because anything that would have made the project a Western can no longer be found. And often when we do this mashup, when we try to take two separate genres and put them together and fuse them together in this way, those constraints from one genre have to be reinterpreted in a way that makes sense within the genre that we're adding it into. The reason I started with space opera is because I don't know how many of you have seen it, but we, we have a very good example of this with Cowboys and Aliens. Cowboys and Aliens was a movie that came out a while back, and uh, yeah, it has, guess what, Cowboys, and it has Aliens. And the movie doesn't work because these are functionally two separate things. The Aliens work off of space opera, galactic empire type technology, whereas the cowboys work off of the logic of a Western. And the two are butting heads and sliding against each other in ways that don't work. And when we finally have to have a fusion of the two to make it work, it feels 
awkward, and a mess. Because the constraints of Western were not applied to the space opera elements, nor were the elements of space opera added to the Western. They're simply two different genres colliding and not meshing, not melding, not fusing into a new thing. Thus, the film doesn't work. And you can actually track most of the problems in that movie to that very problem. And that was my adult cat, Jinx, who just wanted to be part of the play. (laughs) Oh, it's fun around here today. But that is something that we have to take into consideration whenever we're working on a project, especially one in which we're wanting to combine multiple genres. You're not just taking them and meshing them together. I'm currently working on a story that, well, an entire setting that's basically a wuxia magipunk space opera. Those are three separate, distinct genres. So I have to figure out what rules apply from each and build, if you will, a new genre, constructing the constraints that you would get from each of those and figuring out how they then apply in the setting that's being invented. I can't just say, well, it's a space opera, but all of the tech is magic and it's going to have Shia moving around. It's going to have martial heroes. So everybody's going to practice martial arts because that's just the way it is. Now, well, let's be honest. I could say that if I wanted to, but it doesn't make for an actual new genre. It doesn't make for an actual setting. I've merely said that I'm going to take Limu Bai, pick him up out of his original stuff, or the Taoist, and transpose him into a space opera. Well, what would Li Mubai have to do with a spaceship? What need would he have for a spaceship? What would be the point of having a powerful sword or being a great duelist in a space opera? How does that work? How does that actually function? That is the question. That is the heart of the operation. Figuring out exactly how these genres meld together is the first step of world building if you want your world to be believable. Because it has to have its own internal, consistent rules. You see, I can't say that Well, the hero can do this because, you know, Wuxia, and, oh, the hero can also do that because, you know, space opera, and, oh yeah, the hero can do this because magic punk. Magic punk, magic punk, don't you love the magic punk? See, that's just hodgepodging. That's making a collage rather than an integral world or an integral setting. So if I'm going to say that, for example, people in this setting have access to Negong, Negong is that internal force that you build up within yourself that one makes you more, can make you more resilient to being hit, but can also be extended outside of yourself to, say, knock people down. Okay? If I say that, 
then how does Negong relate to the magic that actually works in the technologies? These cannot be separate things. Can I get an implant that boosts my Negong? Or is it something that I actually have to cultivate within myself? And if I can get an implant, then exactly where does the energy come from to fuel it? Is there one source for this magical power in the galaxy, such as the Force in Star Wars? Or are there multiple? Are there different things that can be done to bring about magical effect? Are there different things that can bring about magical effect that are, in reality, just utilizing different aspects of that one universal background energy, like the Force? How does that work? These are questions that need to be answered before writing commences, or at least before we get to something called a first draft. They can be worked out in the zero draft of the story, but they have to be figured out before the first draft comes into being so that you can have consistent rules that make sense. If we're going to just hand wave and say, well, of course that's the way it is because a wizard did it, mm, that's not helpful. That doesn't actually support or benefit anything. It's just saying, well, I have starships and I have wizards. If you want to see how that works, uh, there's a movie by Disney called The Black Cauldron. Because see, Star Wars was really big, and so before Disney had the money and the ability to buy Star Wars, it tried to make its own, and it was called The Black Cauldron, and... Oh, it's a thing... Because, again, they didn't understand this. See, George Lucas didn't understand this either. But he went through draft after draft after draft of the Star Wars script, each one becoming more and more Star Wars. Until he finally filmed a movie. That movie, in and of itself, was still not Star Wars. It took his wife, who did a massive edit and rework of the footage that he had captured, that created Star Wars. She created the rules by which every movie that follows then had to play by. That's how Star Wars became Star Wars. You see, it was the constraints. It was learning how to take the disparate genres that he was fusing together from the Jedi Geki films from Japan, which gave us our samurai and our samurai ethos, to the westerns that he also pulled heavily from to the space opera that he loved as a kid, the Flash Gordons and whatnot. Those three things get meshed together in the edit rather than in the writing. They had kind of been meshed together a bit in the writing previously, but it really was that final edit that made Star Wars Star Wars. In fact, this is one of the things that I think most people pick up on when you watch the prequels, but they don't realize that that's what it is. See, by the time the prequel trilogy was done, George Lucas had enough money, he could just pretty much do whatever he wanted. And he had final say over what he made. So the story that he ended up creating has a lot of the problems that his original Star Wars had in that the parts are showing. 
You can see that kind of get melded out and mushed together when you have Dave Filoni and the others brought in to do Clone Wars with him that are able to smooth out some of those rough edges and make the prequels and the prequel era make a lot more sense. But you have to have figured out how the genres are going to work together. They are constraints on your creativity. They are not licensed to do whatever you want. This is something that I see a lot of people worried about with Carnival Row, which is a series that I am absolutely in love with and will soon be running a cipher game based on with some friends of mine. Because I love the setting. And I see what they did there is actually applying constraints over each other. The story is essentially a gas lamp fiction, if you want to call it that. You might even maybe go as far as to say steampunk, but I'm not sure if it's going to veer entirely that way. We'll have to see as things progress. It's definitely very gas lamp fiction. It's set in a very Victorian world. You have a Jack the Ripper type story. You then add a layer of fantasy on top. And this is where I think people get lost. They think there are two genres added on here. That they added on a level of high fantasy with the fae characters. And they added on a layer of supernatural horror. I don't think that that's what they did. I think they basically asked themselves, what would the fae look like if they had come from a Lovecraftian world? And so we get fae who, yes, have wings. Yes, they are biological creatures. They're not really mystical. But there are cultists out there. There are secrets that are out there that are able to bring unknown horrors into the world. So what I'm seeing when I'm looking at a show like Carnival Row is the constraints of supernatural horror being put onto a gas lamp story. And that's it. And that's the story that we end up get playing out in season one. Is a supernatural horror set in a gas lamp setting. And you can see the constraints of both fighting against each other. The gruesomeness of the magic that's presented within the story is both in line with what you would see in Victorian England, which heavily inspired the setting, as well as in a Lovecraftian story, where you could have a great emphasis on blood and gore. Instead, if you notice, they pay much more attention to the viscera and the gooiness, the gelatinous nature of a lot of the oogie boogies that go rumble in the dark. In fact, there's a lot of Lovecraftian influences in this setting. So I personally get excited because I see them having applied those constraints. We have the promise of a character maybe being a chosen one. Maybe. But who is it? See, the chosen one prophecy is explained in course of the story. And we're given several candidates as to who the Chosen One might be. Well, that's fun. That works. I like that. But you have to remember, that's not a Chosen One from the point of view of a high fantasy story. 
where the chosen one is necessarily going to do great things. As in, save the realm, save everybody, make everything good and true again. This is a chosen one in a Lovecraftian setting. For all we know, the chosen one that's promised in Carnival Row is the one that is going to make the Dark Isle of Relay come up again. He's going to make the stars right. Or she, because there's a she that... Well, they've left it kind of open as to whether or not she's eligible. You know, it's a thing. It's not a chosen one who will necessarily save us all. And because of the constraints that have been put into the setting, that makes the questions that you need to be asking much more interesting. So bear that in mind. Adding more genres together adds more constraints on the setting, the story, and the world. It doesn't add a license to just do more things. I hope you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> if you did, this was actually inspired by a couple conversations I had on Twitter, one with Art Plant and one with my friend Amarian Rich. If you're not reading Amarian's fiction, shame on you. If you like dark stuff, she is really good. Check her out at horror.addicts.net. Ah, so much going on. We're getting into Preptober. Are you ready? I want to thank everybody who's already rated this episode. If you haven't, please do that. It does help out a lot. If you have a dollar that you can pass my way, really does help out a lot. In the show notes, you'll find a link to both community support and my Patreon. The difference between the two is the people on Patreon occasionally get stuff. Hopefully more stuff going forward. I'm working on that. If you have... Thank you to everybody who already does that. If you don't have any money right now or you don't feel like giving, that's fine. But if you know somebody you think would like this podcast, do share it with them. That helps out a lot, too. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed on the show, in the show notes, you'll find a link to the voice message system. Keep it short, keep it clean, so I can use it on the show. I would love to hear from you. You can also hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. I'm C. Dorset on both. You can find links to everything that I do over at projectshadow.com. Until next time, don't forget, have the fun. Bye. <laughs>